All right, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 9. So last week, we saw our man Noah. He was on the boat with his family for a year, riding the storm out. Finally, the floodwaters subside, and the world Noah and his family step into is completely different. I mean, like literally, the environment, the landscape has been totally changed. It's a different planet. Noah's first act is to give God honor. God made a promise to Noah. He was the only guy on the planet that God was speaking with and said, here's what I'm going to do. And it was a strong message, one that Noah had to trust in because he didn't fully get the details of all of the explanation of how it was going to happen and even the timing of it as we talked about over a hundred years goes by before the first drop is felt trust is built in the journey steps off the boat builds an altar and makes sacrifice to God and then in chapter 9 verse 1 we read this and God blessed Noah and his sons. And then he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Noah and his family were given the task of repopulating the planet. Now in a very real sense, Noah is a lot like Adam because with Adam, God begins the work of creation, humanity, the first male and female, Adam and Eve. That's the beginning work of God's creation. So God creates and then with the flood, he decreates. But then with Noah, he recreates. And there's a lot of similarities between Adam and Noah. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God gives the same charge to Adam and Eve that he just gave to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply. In fact, as we'll see throughout the text, Adam and, uh, Adam and, and Noah, there are so many parallels that if, if you're a reader, they just kind of scream at you, right? And they did a good job. Uh, they took this charge uh, literally, and, and they, did, they did well. To this day, there are nearly 8 billion people on the planet. So as God starts this act of recreation, that's the charge to Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law. Now, um, in addition uh, to this, Adam and Noah, as creators, uh, they... Um, they're, they're given the same charge. And it's really, really interesting. It's like, of all the things that God would want them to know, he establishes their authority. Their authority over the planet. And, and he says this in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Every animal is going to live in fear of you. They're going to dread, and, and, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. In the same way that God gave the charge to Adam and Eve, all of this is yours. You, you, you are to steward it all, make good use of the resources, but it's all under your authority. Same charge to Noah. Every moving thing that lives, it's fair game to eat will be food for you. 
And as I gave you the green plants, now he says, I give you everything. Everything is given to mankind to steward. But man sits at the top of the food chain. Interesting. It says the animals will fear man. Have you ever experienced the fear of an animal toward you? So you have this theory, whenever animals exhibit fear toward people, people should probably respond with their own sense of healthy fear. I'm just going to be, be candid with you. I, um, I'm very suspicious of any creature that's bigger than me, okay? <laughs> it's just how it is, all right? I'm just suspicious of any creature, human or otherwise, that's bigger than me. It's just it is what it is, okay? And, and I have, I have, a, um, I have a, a special fear uh, of, of, of horses. And now this goes back to when I was much, much younger. I was on a trip with some friends. We were in Guatemala. We were in this little, little podunk town uh, right on the, this lake called Lake Atitlan and kind of out in the middle of nowhere and everybody decided, you know what would be fun? You know what would be fun? It would be fun to ride horses. And I'm like, all right, if we do this, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get the sorriest old nag they have, all right? And that's literally what I went up to the stable. I'm, I want the sorriest old nag that you have. Like, I want my feet dragging the ground, okay? That's, that's me and horses, right? And so that didn't happen. I, um, I get put on this massive horse that hasn't, ha hadn't been ridden in a while. Now, apparently that's a thing. I guess you have to ride horses to, like, you know, keep them used to, you know, being ridden and stuff like that. So this horse hadn't been ridden in a while, so I get on this horse. And, and the, the ride out was great, you know, it was, it was pleasurable and everything, it was fun. And then when we turned around and started to come back, about halfway back, I don't know what happened. This horse sensed it was going back to the stable. And what did it do? It ran. It ran. And I'm trying to hold on to this horse as hard as I can. Because I know if I go down and, and I get hurt, the only doctor that's going to see me is the witch doctor. I'm like, I'm not having that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not having that. And so I'm holding on to this thing tight and it's running. And we make it back. And I'm telling you, it was such a painful, physically painful experience to me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got off the horse. I laid down. Jill walks over. I look at her and I said, I'm afraid that we're going to be adopting, okay? Because... <laughs> I think that thing just sterilized me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Wild animals, they have to be domesticated in order to be friendly. And even then, you better watch them. Why? Because they are creatures of instinct. Where do you think that comes from? They're instinctual creatures. Even domesticated dogs. We had a dog one. I'm the sweetest dog ever. This guy goes riding by on his bicycle. The dog ran out and bit him. What? Dog's like, I'm a creature of instinct. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? There's a lot in this text that explains everything around us. E even the fear of animals upon man. And, and in some way, this is, you know, it's really good of God because it's this fear instinct that helps keep animals alive. And additionally, everything that moves is now eligible to be eaten. So this is really curious. Certainly from a, a Western diet's perspective, people eat some pretty gnarly things, you know, in this world. People are eating, like, you know, insects, bugs, fried worms. I don't even like gummy worms, you know, but <laughs> people are eating, they, people eat a lot of crazy things, right? Um, everything now is fair game for man to eat. Some commentators believe that before this, Mankind had a ve vegetarian uh, diet. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. Um, 
It's interesting because the charge to Adam and Eve is that they would have dominion. The word dominion literally means to dominate. In fact, the Hebrew word is a very strong one. It means to tread upon. When Abel was making his sacrifice, what did he offer up? The best portions, which were fat, which would imply that perhaps the other portions were to be eaten. In, in any case, Jesus, we know, ate lamb and fish, and so that's the green light for me. Um, <laughs> however, check this out. There is one, this is really interesting, there is one dietary, or I should say, eating restriction for Noah. By the way, there was an, an eating restriction for Adam, too, right? God told Adam, it's all yours, just one, one eating restriction, don't eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So Noah gets off the boat, interesting, you know, sort of recreation, right? God says, oh, I, got I have an eating restriction for you too. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So now we're introduced to the importance of blood. The word for blood is mentioned almost 500 times throughout the Bible. We're told that the life of a creature is in its blood. So if you're new to Christianity or you're curious and you're like, why do Christians always talk about the blood, especially like the blood of Jesus? Well, this is actually why. Because when Jesus came to the earth, he died shedding his blood, which is another way of saying it was his life. He gave his life. If the life of a creature is in its blood, you drain it of its blood, it's giving its life. So that, that's an important concept that you begin to see unfold here. Essentially, God tells Noah, don't eat an animal that's still alive. Don't eat an animal that has blood coursing through its veins. So in, in um, addition to being uh, humane, by the way, animals do this to each other, right? Animals eat each other alive. God says, no, that's not what you're to do. Now, there's this interesting connection between life and blood that God speaks to in the very next verses, okay? It's actually, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful flow of thought. One thing leads to another. Verse five, God says, and for your lifeblood, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Now why? Well, in God's goodness, he gives you the reason. Because God made man in his image. Okay, this goes back to original creation. Of all God's creatures he created, only man, at the pinnacle of all his creation, only man, male and female, is created in the image of God. So here we see God placing a very high, in fact, the highest value on human life. So much so that even Animals are held accountable for taking human life. In Exodus chapter 21, we, we read this. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. However, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So in other words, human life has such a high value that if a guy owns an ox, knowing that the ox has killed in the past, 
but doesn't restrain the animal, the animal kills again, then not only is the ox held accountable, but also the owner. So this actually becomes the foundation for capital punishment. Now I know this lands in different ways with different people, but I want to put this in its proper context. And to do that, I'm going to tell you a quick story. When I was a student at ASU, I took a class called Old Testament. I was really excited to take this class because the professor happened to be a rabbi. And so one day we show up to class and the professor quotes from Leviticus chapter 24, which says this, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. And so after reading this, the professor, in an effort to show how ridiculous this statement is, the professor quotes Gandhi. And it was Gandhi who said, if we all practice an eye for an eye, then eventually the whole world will be blind. As if to say that in some way, Gandhi has the moral high ground over God. But here's what both my professor and Gandhi seriously misunderstood. Back in the day, when there were no rules and laws, the world operated from the standpoint of unbridled revenge. We saw this just a few chapters before. Cain is the OG murderer, right? He's the first murderer. Well, he has a great, great, great grandson, a guy named Lamech. And this guy is super bad. In fact, he brags, he says, you know, I'm 10 times more violent than my ancestor Cain. In fact, he goes on to say, I killed a man because he slapped me. This is God's merciful way of using restraint in the face of what is in the heart of mankind, and that is for bitter revenge. So this law is very merciful in that it forms a restraint for the deep-seated desire, and I think if we're to be honest, it's probably within our hearts as well to take things too far. You bust out my tooth, I'll take your life. No, 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 that's not how this is going to go. The penalty will be in proportion to the crime. Additionally, the New Testament adds this in Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So here's what he's saying. Human authority is established by God. Uh, This would include law enforcement. Another way of saying this would be to say that the police officer is ordained by God. Let me just say that again. The police officer is actually ordained by God. Now, are all police officers noble? No. Are all pastors noble? No. All authority should be held accountable. But the government does not have the authority to tell Christians how to live their spiritual lives. And you see specific examples of this all throughout the Bible, actually, right? Even in the Old Testament, there's this prophet, man named Daniel. The king sends down an order. Pray to no one except for, essentially, he says, me. And what does Daniel do? Now, remember, Daniel at this time happens to be very close to the king, And you see Daniel, text is interesting, literally says, with his window open, (laughs) with the window open, he prays three times. You understand that Christians, much of the New Testament was written under some of the most anti-Christian regimes the world has ever known. Just look up the dude Nero. The guy was a sociopath, psychotic. And yet, Christians adopted this attitude, prayer is not only our offense, but it is also our defense. And what is the specific prayer? Prayer, Pray for those in authority. It's interesting, the specific prayer, if you look closely, is really that those in authority would come to know Christ, that they would be saved. Because laws only get you so far. What you really need is a transformation of the human heart. And that is the prayer. Notice the author writes, if you do wrong, be afraid. Why? For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. So again, if you're in the first century, this imagery is, is, would be very clear to you and obvious. When emperors assumed authority, guess what they were given? A sword. What, what do you do with a sword? A, a sword is both offensive and defensive. It represented the government's authority to bring justice. Uh, Now, um, some say that capital punishment uh, is uh, is never a deterrent. Certainly that isn't necessarily true. If there are degrees of deterrence, capital punishment would certainly be at the top, but you have to go back to the reason why God lays it down. This is the guiding principle. Human life is valuable. And how do we know that? Because there's such a high penalty for the willful disregard of what is created in the image of God. So alternatively, this is God's way of saying, do you understand how precious life is? Of all creation, only humans 
are created in my image, therefore worthy of the utmost honor, respect, and dignity. Now, God is doing something else with this command. He is establishing rules where there would otherwise be chaos. When these rules are followed, watch this, they actually lead to a well-ordered society. See, this is in part the idea behind the Ten Commandments. For example, don't, don't murder. Don't take someone else's life. Okay, that seems reasonable. Well, how about this? Don't pursue your neighbor's wife. Okay, that's going to cause a lot of drama in the cul-de-sac. You know what I'm saying? Don't do that. That's not good for society. Don't go there. See, people say, look, people say what, what a person does in the comfort of their own home, the privacy of their home, is, is that's none of nobody else's business but theirs. Well, mm, maybe not. And here's why. Because we do live in this thing called a society. And what you do in private, you take with you in public. You understand what I'm saying? What you do in private becomes a part of who you are. And then you go out into public and begin to function that way. I'll give you a simple example. How many people did I talk to, both men and women now, who have a, a, some kind of an addiction? Let's say it's a pornography addiction, where, where they're spending hours in the privacy of, the, of their own home, absorbed in pornography, and then they go out and try to interact with members of the opposite sex, and they can't even have a normal conversation because all they're doing is viewing that person as a sex object and nothing more. What you do in private actually does matter because it's who you are. You, then you take that out into society where you function with the rest of us. It's kind of important. So, these, th so the God is really good here because it's like, okay, things went really bad, so we had to start over again. We did a reboot. But now, here, we're going to lay down some rules that if you follow, they're going to lead to a well-ordered, meaningful society. Some people say well, the Ten Commandments are there to reflect the glory and the image and the righteousness of God. Yes, that's true. But they're also there to help us because we need some guidance. That was proven before. So in God's goodness, he begins to give these direct commands to Noah. This is how things are going to go. No more kill somebody if they slap you. It's going to be in measure and in proportion. Uh, because man is made in the image of God, his life is inherently precious, cannot be taken without giving an account to God. So he continues, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. And this they did well. Next, God makes a promise. And I think in part, this promise was meant to comfort Noah after all that he had been through. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant. Think of this as a promise. And when God makes a promise, it's unilateral because it's not dependent on anybody else. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this, this promise is not just to to uh, humanity, but it's, it's to the animal kingdom as well. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Now, this is really cool language, and I'll explain more to you in a second. He says, I have set my bow. Okay, so, so God has a bow. God has a bow. He, God has a bow, right? He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. 
It says, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is gonna be the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God has this stunningly beautiful visual sign saying that he will not destroy the earth by water again. And I began by saying, I think this is really good for Noah because every time some dark clouds rolled in, Noah's like, hey God, do we need to talk? <laughs> hey God, it's getting wet. This bow in the sky is a reminder that God made a promise it's not gonna go down like that. Now, this bow though is not primarily for man. It's actually for God. Verse 15, when the bow is in the cloud, God says, I will see it. I will, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So in other words, he says, destruction will never come this way again. However, later, Jesus will say that the earth will be destroyed. There will be a final destruction. It won't be by water. It will be by fire. Read the book of Revelation for more details. Now, this bow represents more than you think. The Hebrew word for bow is cachet, and it's most commonly used to describe an archer's bow. Now what's fascinating is that when ancient authors wanted to paint the picture, when, when they wanted to describe war, you know what kind of language they would use? You actually see this in uh, ancient drawings as well. When they wanted to, to portray war, you know what image was used? A flexed bow, right? Like an archer putting the arrow in the bow and flex. And what happens to the arms of that bow? They're flexed. They're under pressure, just waiting to be released. And when they're released, the arrow flies. More so, soldiers would hang their bows on the wall. And when a bow was hanging on the wall, it was in the relaxed position. And when a bow is in a relaxed position, what does it mean? Peace, not war. God has a bow, and he essentially waged war against evil, and he won decisively. And then what does he do? He hangs his bow in the clouds. And if you look at a rainbow, what is it? What's the arch? It's this long, relaxed position. Isn't that interesting? It's God saying, you can be at peace. <laughs> when it rains, the earth won't be flooded. I have fought evil and won and now I've hung my bow and it's not tight anymore that war is over and now it's peace so every time you see God's bow we call it a rainbow I like calling it God's bow because that's what the text says every time and we've got some beautiful ones here in the desert every time you see God's bow in the sky be reminded that God keeps his promises. So I was thinking about the relevancy of that today. 
there are hundreds of promises in the Bible. God keeps his promises. I mean, come on. You know, the, the greatest promise is that there would be a forthcoming Messiah. Jesus came. No reputable historian doubts the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. The question is, what do you do with him? Really, who is he? See, this is where it gets really fun because you read through the Bible and the Old Testament gives you... There's so many prophets speaking about who the Messiah is, what he will do, where he will be born, how he will die, how he will be raised to life. You know, there's a reason why Jesus every year is the most popular individual the world over. More is no, no one's more talked about, no one is more written about. Why is that? Well, because God made a promise that Jesus would come, and he has. So there are all these other promises that we can rest assured. And so I just pulled out a few that I think might be particularly relevant in light of the world that we live in right now. Okay, let me give, let me give you a couple of them. Number one, first of all, God promised salvation to all believe, who believe in Jesus. Romans 1.16, I love this verse. This is it. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? You shouldn't be. And here's why. Because it has power. The only kind of power that comes from God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew. Christianity at the hard root is actually Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. God entrusted his words to the Jews. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There is no greater, greater blessing to have the gift of salvation. Secondly, God promised that all things will, will work out for good. Let me just say that again. God promised that all things will work out for good. Now, how many times have you heard that and you're like, that's such a nice Christian platitude. Let me just flesh it out for you. The rest of the passage explains what good is. And good is not having a situation or a circumstance work out the way you want it to. You know what the good is defined as? The good is defined as being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Mm. God works out all things so that you can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the good. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the broader picture, everybody, that keeps us from being dismayed by present circumstances, knowing that God is in the midst and working even, watch this now, through evil. Because, I've said before, Satan always overplays his hand. The death of Jesus is proof of that. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that was Satan's best day. His worst day came three days later. God promised comfort in our trials. 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a lot of comfort there. Why? Because we need it. And this is the way it works. You're going through something. God is with you. He comforts you. He gets you through it. 
That's the reason why Psalm 23 is so, so well known, right? It's like God walks with you through the valley of the shadow of darkness. He doesn't lead you around it, everybody. He walks you through it. He's there with you. Why? So that you can have that experience of comfort. See, and this is the beautiful part of it. If you, if there is purpose to your suffering and heartache, you can make it through. And part of the purpose is to know that as God walks with you, you then become the kind of person that walks with others and is a comfort to them. That's God taking your suffering up into his greater purposes. And if you know there's, a, see, isn't this the story of Job? Isn't that what Job is asking? He's like, God, what's going on? What's going on? What he doesn't know is what happens in act one. You know, he's on this side of the curtain like us. He doesn't see everything that goes on on this side of the curtain. The curtain just goes up and he starts getting stuff taken away from him. And he begins asking God questions. One more from Jesus. Jesus promised that he will return. John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And from then on, we will be with uh, Jesus forever. Uh, You know, this is, uh, isn't this the idea that you and I would live today in light of eternity, knowing what our future destination is? Isn't this the idea that you can wake up in the morning and face it without fear, knowing that the man or woman of God is invincible until God takes you home? You have all of these beautiful promises in the Bible. And God is good enough to say, I am a promise keeper. In fact, I'm going to give you a beautiful, stunning visual reminder. My bow is going to be in the clouds, everybody. But even more than that, there are all of the fulfilled promises made in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because this is going to land in different ways with different people. But what I'm wanting right now is for the Spirit of God just to do His work in your life. What is God saying to you? What is the promise that you need right now? The world has always been a confused place and getting more so. But in the middle of it, God has called out this people who are not confused. We see it clearly. We don't understand the outworking of everything, but we understand the one who works it all out. So Father, as is our desire every week, We pray that your spirit would just move in our hearts and our minds. Lord, for those who don't know you, continue to draw them closer to you. Nobody is here by accident. Nobody's listening by accident. Father, may we be reminded of your truthfulness, your goodness, your desire for us, even as as humanity to live in peace with one another. It's only when we deviate from your good laws and rules that we get sideways. We pray for all those in human authority that they would come to know you, making decisions in wisdom. 
And Father, until that happens, give especially your people discernment and wisdom, understanding the times in light of our future destination. God, help us to live every day in light of that. All for your glory, as we always say, so that the name of Jesus can be lifted up and be made famous. And God's people said, Amen.